Perhaps nothing in our lifetimes has so universally affected humans than the coronavirus pandemic. And a new book from a Portland-based journalist has the ambitious goal of sharing more than two dozen stories from around the country. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Before we start, a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pacific Source, for supporting the show. Up next, books columnist Amy Wong interviews Eli Saslow, the Portland-based reporter for the Washington Post and a Pulitzer Prize winner who's one of the nation's preeminent storytellers. Saslow's third book, Voices from the Pandemic, Americans Tell Their Stories of Crisis, Courage, and Resilience, comes out September 28th. Amy and Eli talked about how he picked who to focus on in the book, which started as a series in the post, the reporting process during a pandemic, the connective tissue between his previous work on white nationalism and the conspiracy theories tied to the pandemic, and much more. Here's Amy and Eli's conversation. Eli Zaslow, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So we're here today to talk about Voices from the Pandemic, which is a book based on a collection of stories that you wrote for the Washington Post. You wrote your first Voices from the Pandemic story in March of 2020, as numerous states were recording their initial COVID-19 cases. When did you start tracking the pandemic and when did you know it was something you were going to follow long term? Yeah, it's uh, just just hearing you say that it just makes me uh, wish, obviously, that we were we were at a different point now, uh, 18, 18 months later than than where we are. I, I I think I was naive enough then to think that uh, this was a project that would that would uh, that would endure the course of the pandemic, but but that that would be a year or, or whatever it would be. Um, and and now, obviously, the reality is much different. Uh, but I, I I write sort of these longer pieces for the Washington Post about um, you know uh, kind of the the major news around the country. So I think as soon as, as, you know, February, late February, when we started having um, a bunch of cases, you know, nationally and, and even specifically here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, where I live too, um, in, in the Seattle area, I, I knew that this was going to be a story that I would, I would be following. And I, I went and spent uh, a stretch of of a week or so at the end of uh, February and beginning of March at a at a rural hospital in 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 sort of eastern Washington, um, watching the first cases show up there, and and I think pretty quickly I I determined that that you know it was it was definitely the the thing to to be paying attention to and to be writing about for the for the foreseeable future, and and you know sadly that's still the case. Mm. You ended up interviewing more than 200 people about their experiences with COVID-19. How did you find these people and how did you persuade them to share what were in some cases very personal stories? It was really a learning experience for me too, because typically um, in my in my work, uh, I, I write these stories where I go and I spend a lot of time in person with the people that I'm writing about. If, if I'm writing about somebody who's being deported, I, I go and I'm there in Mexico with them the first week that they're back, and and I I kind of embed into people's lives, and so you know I'm there with them and I'm interviewing them, but I'm also you know seeing with my own eyes what's happening in their lives, and I'm going with them to their doctor's appointments, and I'm listening to them talk to the people around them. And and I think I realized pretty quickly in, in March of last year that um, that kind of journalism was going to become really dicey, uh, if, if possible at all, for, for, for the foreseeable future. I mean, I, not only because of the risks that I would be 
putting myself in by getting on a plane and, and traveling to go spend time with people, but also because for the people I write about, I, I would be showing up as sort of like a hot potato in their lives and, and potentially putting them at, at some degree of, of exposure too. Um, so, so really the idea for this, this book and, and this series of coverage kind of began from a place of accommodation of like, how, how can I find a way to still tell stories that are intimate, and immediate uh, and and empathetic about people and what they're going through in their lives without being there to see it myself. Um, so I began sort of having these extremely long uh, phone conversations, multiple mm-hmm. phone conversations that would last over weeks at a time with people whose experiences were sort of at the heart of the pandemic. Yeah, that, you're you're reminding me of one woman's story in particular where you actually transcribe her saying, "Well, I, I'm running out of air. I, I can't breathe. Let me call you back." I mean, that's all in the piece verbatim, and that was really fascinating because it really gave you a sense of being there with her in real time. Yeah, I, pr- I appreciate you saying that. I mean, that that was Darlene, who um, you know, at first when I started talking to Darlene. Uh, uh, healthy, a previously healthy 52 year old in upstate New York. Uh, I, I had reached out to her because I thought I was going to write about her as somebody who was suffering from early long haul COVID symptoms. I mean, she'd gotten sick and she'd never really gotten better and it, it didn't make sense to her or anybody around her. And, and so we started having these long conversations, um, me thinking that I was going to write about what it was like to never quite recover. Uh, and in fact, as it turned out, um, as we continued talking to each other, she was, she was dying. I mean, the, the, the virus was slowly killing her. It had gotten into her, her, her lungs and then her kidneys and was beginning to affect her heart function. Um, you know, and, and for those uh, last few weeks, we would talk whenever she had the energy. Um, you know, sometimes that would be for a few hours a day. Sometimes it would be for, 10, 15 minutes and, and she'd be spent. Um, and then, you know, after she, she died, uh, you know, I began talking also to her son who was there with her and who tried to revive her at the end and, and to the people who, who buried her and, and the mortician and the funeral home and sort of followed some of these stories out. Um, sometimes to their very sad, sad endpoints. She represented one end of the range of experiences that the book covers, uh, COVID patients, healthcare workers, as well as people who were dealing with the secondary impacts, a coroner, a school superintendent, business owners, a food bank operator, even an elections official. How did you decide whose stories to include in the book and how did you find these folks? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think in that way, actually, the reporting process shared a lot in similar, you know, shared a lot in common with what, what my job is normally like, which, which tends to involve a lot of what I call pre-reporting, a, a lot of having conversations with people to decide the people, uh, that I'm going to write about. So, so for instance, you know, at one point in the pandemic, it became clear that, um, a lot of counties around the country had mask mandates that they were not enforcing and, and, um, that the people, in fact, who, who were left to enforce these mask mandates were the low wage store clerks, uh, standing behind the counter at a 7-Eleven or wherever else, putting themselves at great risk already being essential workers. Um, and now having people come in unmasked and having sometimes, uh, unpleasant and, and increasingly sometimes violent confrontations with people who refuse to wear masks. So, you know, in that case, um, that really interested me. And I thought, you know, I would like to know a lot more about what it's like to be standing behind that counter every day. So I would begin talking to 
store clerks in that situation from around the country. And, and I would find them through, you know, reading about, uh, you know, little, little violent clashes that had happened in stores, or I joined a Facebook group for, uh, you know, frontline workers during the pandemic where they would tell their own stories of trying to, to sort of enforce these mask mandates. And, and I began having conversations with maybe a dozen, uh, you know, sort of store clerks around the country hearing about their lives and what it was like. Um, and in those dozen conversations was sort of looking for who's, who's the one person who I might begin to have hours and hours of conversation with to, to really do justice to this experience. And so one of those initial dozen conversations was with this woman named Lori Wagner. Uh, she makes $9 an hour working behind the, the counter of sort of a, a food mart supply store in rural North Carolina. Uh, she's a 64-year-old asthmatic woman and was rightfully terrified of what this virus might do to her if she caught it, uh, but needed this job. Um, the, the police in this town had, were not enforcing the mask mandate and had said publicly that they didn't believe in it. Um, so she had begun the pandemic by sort of appealing to a neighborly sense of kindness and putting a sign outside of her store saying, you know, please wear a mask. It's a way to show that you care about us. Um, of course, many of these people still did not wear masks. So her signs got more insistent. Wear a mask. It's the law. Wear a mask or don't come in. And over time, you know, these, these sort of interactions at her store became more and more problematic to the point where she started working with the door to the store locked and with mace next to her at the counter because she was beginning to have a few violent uh, interactions with customers every day. Um, so once I, I heard that, I realized, you know, I want to hear Lori's story. And, and I think other people should hear what this is like too. So I would talk to Lori before her shifts, after her shifts. When she was at work, I would say, hey, can, can you put me on FaceTime on your phone and just kind of turn me around at the counter so I can get a sense of what it's like in the store? And um, you know, and, and after all of those conversations, which sometimes would go on for a few weeks, uh, I would take, you know, 30, 40, 50 pages of, of notes from our conversations and I would edit them, um, and, and, uh, mostly truncate them, uh, and, and structure them into personal monologues, stories about, about Lori's experience and what her life in the pandemic was like. Wow. Did you ever show them the monologues after you had completed them? It's a great question and, and was one of the first questions, honestly, that, um, that, that my editors and I had early in the pandemic because this was, you know, for the Washington Post too, where these, these stories, many of them were first running. Um, these stories were also unusual. Like it's the Washington Post does not run, uh, first person sort of as told to pieces, um, in the paper very often. And, and so the first ethical question was, well, do, do, are these stories that they're, they're telling themselves? Should, should I be handing these stories over to them and saying, what do you think? Or as the journalist, am I the one who's making the choices about what should be included? And, and I think a really important decision early on was that, um, those were my choices to make. And, and it was my responsibility to make them because as journalists, what we do all the time is we report and we talk to people and we see things and we decide what's, what's newsworthy and what's important to include and, and, and what reflects the story fairly. Uh, so, so in every case, the first time that these people saw saw the stories was when they were published, just, just as with a, a traditional piece of journalism. Well, that's interesting, you know, because typically with a book, you don't see anything until the book itself comes out. But in this case, these stories ran in the post first. So did you get feedback from them in between the time the piece was published in the post and the time the book came out? Oh, yeah. Tons, tons of feedback. And most of these people, I mean... You know, of the 40 or so stories that are, that are, that are featured in the book, most of those are people that I'm still in touch with. 
in part because, you know, when I spend a week or a week and a half talking nonstop to somebody like Lori, who, who probably has never talked to a journalist before and certainly has never, you know, had anybody, uh, sort of as interested in every detail of her life. Um, she's, she, you build trust with somebody and she becomes used to telling me what's happening during her days. And, and it doesn't feel like, uh, a fair thing to do, frankly, as as just a person, to then once once I'm done reporting on her, to sort of say I, I no longer am interested in hearing about what you're dealing with. First of all, that's not the truth. I also have become interested and curious in in Lori and her experience, and also she she still wants somebody to talk to about some of the things that are happening when things get bad at the store. So, you know, I end up staying in touch um, with with some of these people for for a long time, um, and and I think one of the great gifts of this kind of storytelling uh, is that because these are first person pieces, I think all of all of these people ended up hearing from tons of people in their own lives or around the country. I mean, Lori, you know, because many people read read that piece in the Washington Post and it, and because it came directly from her uh, and and it felt like a direct interaction between the reader and and Lori at the store because it was a first person piece she still gets people coming into the store all the time from around the country who say hey I, I read about I read about what's happening to you I'm really sorry she gets people that that send her things and she also of course gets gets the other side backlash of 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 people who are um, who who are anti-mask and and who who read who read the piece and and have given her some harassment in return. So you know, I, I think I always try to remember in this work that like the true the true risk and the true act of courage in, in any piece of journalism is always on the side of the people that we're writing about. Uh, it's a it's a tremendously brave and vulnerable thing to um, open up your your life, particularly at a hard moment. Uh, to a stranger and, and to then trust that stranger to share that story with um, a lot of people like that. That's, that's, I think a, a really courageous thing to do. And so our job, uh, my job on the other end um, as, as the journalist is to make sure that I'm doing it fairly. And, and that doesn't just mean getting the facts, right? It means, am I, am I doing a fair and honest and if possible, empathetic job representing this person's experience of walking through the world? Oh, absolutely. And in this case of the first person as told to, you're essentially breaking down that fourth wall. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that makes it even more important. Like it, it would have been, you know, I think it would have really given me pause if, if in any case, uh, one of, one of these subjects read the story, uh, and said, this doesn't feel like me. Um, you know, because the stories are all in their words. These are all, you know, I'm, I'm recording and, and transcribing the notes from all of our conversations and anything that is in this book was said to me. It's a, it's a, it's a quotation. I'm, I'm, I'm truncating, you know, 10 hours of conversation in some cases into a 15 minute piece. Um, and, and that's a massive challenge and, and, Honestly, an ethical challenge too. Always deciding what to leave leave out and what to include. Um, but but certainly, you know, I think everybody recognized these as their words because they are their words. Let's take a break, then hear more of our conversation with Eli Saslow. Speaking of ethical challenges, uh, at least one story in the book and possibly two are coming from people who were convinced that the pandemic was a hoax. Can you talk about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think it's um, it's something I thought a lot about in writing this book and something I still think a lot about because it's uh, 
you know, tragically, it's not a small number of Americans, right? It's, um, you know, whether it's 20, 25% of, of American adults who are still uh, vehement that they will not get the vaccine, um, that's a large percentage of our country. And it's also that kind of, uh, you know, conspiracy theory, uh, disinformation, scientific denial um, is the reason that we're still in the place in the pandemic that we are. So it's it's important, I think, um, to illuminate that part of our moment. Uh, but it's also important not to let it stand on its own as fact. And, and you know, as particularly in first person as told two stories, that's a little bit more logistically challenging because um, somebody who is a conspiracy theorist sharing their conspiracy theories is not going to be fact-checking themselves at the same time in a first person piece. So, you know, what I what I tried to do in the book is um include that mindset and versions of that mindset um in, in ways that that allowed for a more fair telling of what it leads to and what it means. So for instance, you know, one of the stories in the book is the story of a guy named Tony Green uh, who lived in Dallas, Texas, um really uh close with his family, um also believed that uh that that the coronavirus was essentially a hoax that it that it had been overblown that it wasn't real uh that as a 42 year old um he was essentially immune uh and and managed to actively convince his family to fall into the same rabbit hole conspiracy theories and eventually said to his family look I know the state's telling us not to get together. I know, I know that there are bans on big gatherings, but let's have a, let's have a party at my house. Um, and so all of his, his in-laws and others came over to his house. Um, many of them stayed the night and, you know, not surprisingly, uh, as, as, as we've heard in other cases, many of these people began to get sick. Uh, and, and Tony's father-in-law died of the virus, uh, sort of breaking up his, um, relationship and breaking his heart. Tony himself got, uh, unbelievably sick and, and was in the hospital and had a, had a real scare. Um, you know, the virus ripped through this whole family. And, and so that piece, became about uh, disinformation and and all of the things that Tony had believed, but also uh, it became a lot about his own guilt of of um, being somebody who whose own ignorance had had caused this much real pain, sickness, and death in his family and with people that he that he cares about. And so I, I think and hope that by listening to to a story like that and and by you know for me spending twelve hours with somebody like Tony. It's it's easy in this moment in time, I think, to um, to 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 dismiss people and and to not be able to empathize with people whose uh, stories about the world are different from our own, particularly when those stories are just blatantly wrong, right? And 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 false and damaging, like like people who believe the virus isn't real or that masking of all kinds is not effective or the vaccines don't work. Those 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 things are wrong and they're damaging. Um, but those people who believe those things often come to those beliefs from a place of, of their own pain, uh, their own delusions, um, and, and trying to find a way to sort of see past some of these things and still see the people, like the humanity and, and, and the hurt that it causes, I, I think is, is important for us. I, I think you can feel infuriated by, um, Americans who refuse to get vaccinated and also empathize for them, uh, when they're on ventilators and dying. I, I think both of those things are possible. I hope. Did you ever push back with these folks? Uh, did you, or did you just sort of let them talk? 
mostly in, in this work, I let them talk, um, you know, because this, that's what this project was, a, a, an oral history of, of, you know, trying to, to help us all understand where these ideas come from by letting people talk. Uh, certainly then, you know, when the reporting was done, uh, in other moments, they, they, they knew where I stood and I would talk to them about, about their ideas. Like there's, there's one, one person in the book who, uh, who, who was organizing protests against masking in Arizona. Um, and, and we would talk often about, uh, you know, the science and, and why that made no sense to me. Uh, also though, it was not my job to convince him. I mean, my, my job was to hopefully write about what he thinks in a way that makes people realize, yes, this is wrong and this is crazy, but also I understand some little bit where this guy is coming from. And maybe by understanding that, I know how to talk to my own relative who feels this way, or I know how to think about uh, this massive problem with, with conspiracy and disinformation that we have right now in America. Yeah. Yeah. These are, these are tough conversations that everybody is having. <laughs> it's true. So yeah, it's, and, and they're particularly tough. I think when we're having them with people we care about, right? I mean, that's like disinformation is so, uh, pervasive um that that it's i think uh we all encounter it in our own lives and and um you know trying trying to figure out uh how to how to educate people um and and uh and how to how to open up their minds um is is a massively challenging uh thing and and you know it's it's an issue that we face not only on like vaccine hesitancy but also on you know uh issues of, of like endemic white supremacy in America and, and, um, all, all of these other things where we're trying to educate people. And, and there's a lot of like structured resistance to that kind of open-minded education. Were there people's stories that didn't get included in the book that you really wish could have been? Well, I mean, there's certainly a lot of stories, uh, that, that meant something to me, um, while, while I was, I was hearing them. Um, but I, I think, uh, the truth is, like I included the stories in the book that felt like um, that felt like they should be included. I think there's a risk sometimes that if you, uh, you know, particularly in this pandemic, like it is, it is all of our story, right? Like we, it's it, you could talk to any person about about what this pandemic has been like, and all of us have been impacted in some way, right? It, whether it's um, financially, emotionally, psychologically, uh, you know, schools, work, um, and, and our own like physical health and well-being. And so I think I, I knew going into this that, that there were, um, it's like the, the rare journalistic challenge where there are too many stories. And so rather than trying to tell everyone, um, I wanted to report my way through these spaces, uh, and, and sort of distill out, um, the ones that I thought would make people feel things and, and, um, would, would, would move people. And, and, uh, I, I, I hope that that's, that's what's in the book, uh, that, that, that exists. One, one thing that struck me when reading the book, uh, and you mentioned how everybody's had a, this common experience, but in some ways people have also had very different and unique experiences of the pandemic, partly because of where they live or the circles that they move in. What was it like covering the pandemic for a newspaper that is based in the nation's capital, the seat of the empire, as it were, while living in a far corner of the empire in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in some ways, I'm used to it um, because I've lived here for nearly a decade now and, and have been writing about, um, you know, all over the country uh, and for the Washington Post for that entire time. Um, but But I think like the bigger thing, the bigger truth of that is that you're right that we're all 
more than ever, we're all isolated. And particularly during this last year and a half, we've been, we've been isolated into our own physical spaces, uh, into our own ideological bubbles, um, you know, into our, into our own perspectives of the world. We're more cordoned off than we've ever been. And, and the great gift of being a journalist to me is that it's like uh, a constant passport to see and explore beyond your own bubble. I mean, I, I was, you know, my my own pandemic was uh, remarkably privileged, like like many things about my life. But I was also stuck in my house with three little kids who weren't in school and and trying to figure out, um, you know, how to navigate those days. And and for me to be able to uh, call and then have conversations with people across the country who were going through things that were massively more difficult than anything I was going through and and to hear to still hear them be able to talk about those experiences honestly um and and sort of uh with 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 emotional courage um to a stranger like that that in many ways was sustaining for me like it was it was uh although this work can be hard and it can be hard to hear about people who are in pain um, it also was a constant reminder of our common humanity which so many things about our country at the moment are not um so really like it was uh you know for, for as much as sort of hearing and hearing about hard circumstances and telling hard stories for for as much as that can sometimes um be a little bit exhausting or, or for as much as, as it can take out of, of me, it gives me so much more. It, it, it makes me feel like I'm doing work that, that, uh, matters and is purposeful, even if only for me and for my, my own experience of navigating through the world. So I, I felt, felt grateful to be able to, to do that. What was interesting to me was after reading all these stories, some of which, as you say, are really, really difficult to read, you actually come out with a sense of, hope and resilience. I'm so glad you said that uh, because I think it's, that certainly was my experience, right? Like there's uh, the pandemic in many ways, I think has been defined by um, political dysfunction uh, uh, and a, a divisiveness that that is um, that 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 in our country that can be really numbing and discouraging. Uh, but, but if you can cut through all that occasionally and just see the people see like pay attention to somebody and look at what they're doing to navigate their life. Like often what you come away from is, is for me anyway, is just a sense of, um, of heart that is, that is restorative. And, and certainly that was, that was the case in a lot of these stories, whether that's somebody like Burnell Cotlin, uh, like a grocer in the ninth ward of Louisiana, who, who, you know, has no money himself, um, is, is, was struggling massively, uh, but was in a community where nobody suddenly could afford to buy food to eat because everybody had been laid off from their jobs in like casinos and, and in the restaurants in New Orleans. And so he had turned his little store into a food pantry. And and you know seeing the way that that somebody like that um, is still capable of of giving uh, like there 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 are so many examples like that um, I guess that stick with me like our 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 ability to to persevere and to um, to be to be kind I think is uh, is pretty remarkable even in like some some incredibly dark moments. Yeah, you really see the common humanity in this book, even when you don't agree with or necessarily share the opinions of the person whose words you are reading. It's a very different experience from your previous book. You focused on one person, a single person, a young white nationalist who was going through a personal transformation. How do you compare those two experiences as an author? 
Yeah, totally, totally different, as you said. I mean, I I, uh, I wrote another book that that's uh, like President Obama when he was in office. He would he would read ten letters every night from across the country. So I, I spent a year sort of reading the letters that he read and and his responses, and then going out into the country and spending time with with those people. And that that's a little bit more similar to this in that it's um, you know sort of shorter shorter stories uh, from from all over the country. Um, but but I think. You know, like, uh, certainly what, what, what this shares in common with the last book, I guess, and, and it does come from a place of darkness is, is ideas of, of disinformation, um, and, and how pervasive they are. And certainly like white supremacist ideology, um, which still is tragically massively pervasive in the United States, um, you know, structurally and, and like in, in, in interpersonal racism all the time, like those, those are those are big forces uh, at work in our country, and and in terms of, of disinformation and sort of white supremacist ideology, I think it like there can be a temptation sometimes to look away from those things and to try to minimize those problems um, because they're awful to stare into. Uh, but the truth is, I think in both cases, like what needs to happen is a reckoning where you know the United States all of us need to be honest with ourselves about where we are and, and where we are in terms of race, of course, is that uh, we're a country very much built on white supremacist ideals. And, and uh, that's, that's a tragic truth of, of what this country has been and continues to be. And, and unless we stare into that, um, there's no way we have any hope of dismantling it. We have to be honest about our own story. Uh, I think similarly, when it comes to, to disinformation and conspiracy theory thinking. Uh, this is not um, a one-off problem that is likely to go away. This this is something that has become endemic uh, to our technology and, and to our politics. Um, and unless we look hard at, at the problem and also at the people who are who are perpetuating the problem uh, I, I don't think we can we can begin to uh, to, to solve it like it, it requires um, staring into the darkness of some of this stuff I think to figure it out. Yeah, and I should have mentioned that book that we were talking about is Rising Out of Hatred. Do you see other overlaps between those two issues? Certainly. I mean, I think like one overlap is um, that people tend to come to uh, to, to conspiratorial ideas um, and also to uh, hateful conclusions from places of their own personal pain and, and uh, disillusionment, right? Like I think, um, you know, we, we have a lot of people in the country who tell themselves falsely the story that they have been marginalized. Partic- particularly, this is like a story that white men in the country are telling themselves, and it's not true. Like facts do not bear out in any way that, that white men have been marginalized. In fact, uh, they have lived in a country that, that we have lived in a country that has, has uplifted us at the expense of, of other people for a long time. Um, but, but by telling themselves that story, like that, that, that drives people to these radical conclusions that, um, the government is against me. Big pharma is against me. They're trying to do something to, 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 uh, you know, to disenfranchise me further. Um, that people of color are coming into the country and are, are, are taking, taking jobs or, or whatever these false racist myths are that are hugely powerful in our country. And they're powerful because polls continue to show that in the United States, about a third of white people believe that they experience 
white people experience more discrimination than people of color or Jews, which is crazy. That's not, that's not the reality, but that story, that story that people are telling themselves about being disenfranchised is hugely, hugely powerful and dangerous. And it's what drives people to these, to these radical conclusions, whether it's like scientific denial and disinformation, um, or racist ideology. I think they begin oftentimes from the same place. And also like that Venn diagram shares a lot in common, right? I think, uh, people, people, uh, who fall into like conspiracy theory, COVID doesn't exist traps, um, probably are also much more likely to believe uh, some very racist ideas and, and racist conspiracy theories as well. So what can we do about it? What can, what can people on an individual basis do to respond, if anything? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, it's, and the answer is different on these two issues, but I would say the first thing always is to figure out who you are to the person you're trying to change, right? So like if, if you have somebody in your life, uh, who is, uh, who doesn't believe in vaccines and who is saying COVID is, is a conspiracy theory. Um, and that person is somebody that you care about or that cares about you or, or that might listen to you, that might sit down with you and hear your ideas. Then I think we have a responsibility to try to address disinformation where it exists, even though those conversations can be painful and sometimes frankly can feel pointless, right? It's, it's hard to convince people to change their mind about anything. But, but if you, as the person who cares about that, that person, if you don't try, if, if you don't, if you don't begin to try to have those conversations, then certainly nobody's going to change their mind about anything. So I think if you're trying to change somebody that you know and that you care about, interpersonal conversation, communication can be a really impactful thing. Uh, conversely, if what you're seeing is uh, institutions that are supporting either racist ideology or scientific denialism, um, or or if it's somebody that is uh, that you don't you don't feel safe going up and talking to, or you don't feel uh, they are going to listen to your ideas anyway, then I think it's your it, it's absolutely your right, and I think it's also like a very justified and important action to make clear, however you can, that those kind of ideas false, conspiratorial, dangerous ideas don't have a, a space um, in, in the public space that you don't want to hear them. So whether that's not buying products from from a company that's supporting uh, you know, ideas of scientific denialism or, or racist ideas, or whether it's going someplace to show up and protest uh, certain ideas, I think that's that's a really important kind of transformational speech also. Eli, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for joining us today. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Eli's book is available September 28th. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the program. Or tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.